0: You're not going to use the story, Mr. Scott? No, sir. This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. He's right, Prince. doesn't make Easterns, or Northerns, or Southerns. Hollywood makes Westerns. Children growing up as kids did not play oil tycoon. Kids play cowboys and Indians. The Wild West provides some of the most enduring tenets of American mythology, perpetuated by film legends from Bronco Billy to Clint Eastwood. And no wonder, the lawlessness of the time provided plenty of drama and the lonely, wide-swept territories, mountainous and arid provided a most cinematic backdrop. The image is indelible. A lonely cowboy plopping across the plains. Cue the Magnificent Seven soundtrack. Ironically, this era has provided more than 100 years' worth of fantasies, but in historical sense, only lasted about 30 years. In fact, the era known as the Wild Wild West or the American Frontier began after the Civil War in 1865 and ended right about the turn of the century. Welcome to Print the Legend. I'm your host, Mr. Nisosi, an AP U.S. History podcast where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. In the first part of our three-part series, and the closing of the frontier, we'll look at life west of the Mississippi River. From boom to bust, mining towns, life on the cattle drive, and on the lonesome farm, the American landscape out west is far different than it is back east. He was called a prospector, and few were lucky. The chances of an individual finding valuable loads were slim indeed. The gold seeker often worked in a stream bed. A tin pan was filled with sediment and water. And after shaking and shaking, the heavier gold nuggets would sink to the bottom. But rarely anything was found. Western mining wreaked havoc on the local environment Rock dust from drilling was often dumped into the riverbeds. It formed silt deposits downstream that flooded nearby towns and farmlands. But those nearby towns were a vital part to the Western landscape. Many mining towns had a very high male to female ratio, about nine to one. But ethnic diversity was great. Mexican immigrants were common. Native Americans, while avoiding the mining industry, did have Mestizos, the offspring of Mexican and Native Americans, participating quite frequently. Many African Americans aspiring to the same get-rich-quick idea as whites were excluded in the area and often found themselves working in the service sector as cooks or artisans. In the midst of all of this, from the West come Chinese Americans filling those mining towns in search of their own fortunes. Law enforcement was crude. Many towns could not afford a sheriff, so vigilante justice prevailed. You see, in this world, there's two kinds of people, my friend. Those with loaded guns and those who dig. When the Bonanza was at its zenith, The town prospered, but just as quickly as the Wild West exploded, it died out. Eventually, the mines were exhausted or proved fruitless. Slowly, its inhabitants would leave, leaving behind nothing but ghost towns still standing today. Mining was not the only bonanza to be found in the West. Millions could be made in the cattle industry. A calf bought for $5 in southern Texas might sell for $60 in Chicago. The problem was, of course, getting the cattle to market. In 1867, Joseph McCoy tracked a path known as the Chisholm Trail from Texas to Abilene, Kansas. The Texas cowboys drove the cattle the entire distance, 1,500 miles. Along the way, the cattle enjoyed all the grass they wanted at no cost to the ranchers. At Abilene and other railhead towns, such as Dodge City and Ellsworth, the cattle would be sold and the cowboys would return to Texas. No vision of the American West is complete without the cowboy. The imagery is quintessentially American. But many myths cloud the truth about what life was like on the long drive. Contrary to legend, the typical cowboy was not a skilled marksman. The lariat, not the gun, was how the cattle drover showed his mastery. About a quarter of all cowboys were African Americans, and even more were at least partially Mexican. To avoid additional strain on the horses, cowboys were usually smaller than according to legend. The lone cowboy is an American myth. Cattle were always driven in groups of drovers. The cattle were branded so the owner could distinguish his steer from the rest, and several times per drive, cowboys conducted a roundup where the cattle would be sorted and counted again. But perhaps one of the greatest fears was the stampede. That resulted in the loss or death of cattle, and even the cowboys themselves. One method of containing a stampede was to get the cattle to run in a circle where the steer would eventually tire. The heyday of the Long Drive was just as short as the mining towns to their west. By the early 1870s, rail lines reached Texas so the cattle could be shipped directly to the slaughterhouses. Ranchers then began to allow cattle to graze on an open range near the railheads, but even this did not last. The invention of barbed wire by Joseph Glidden ruined the open range. Now farmers could cheaply mark their territory to keep the unwanted steers off their lands. And finally, in the winter of 1886 and 87, one of the worst cold snaps in American history resulted in cattle dying by the thousands. The era of the open range was over. A homestead at last. Many Eastern families who longed for the opportunity to own and farm a plot of land of their own were able to realize their dreams when Congress passed the Homestead Act in 1862. That landmark piece of legislation provided 160 acres free to any family who lived on the land for five years and made improvements. The same amount could be obtained instantly for the small sum of $1.25 per acre. Combined with the completed Transcontinental Railroad, it was now possible for an Easterner yearning for the open space of the West to make it happen. Unfortunately, the lives they found were fraught with hardship. Hankies, face like a shoe. Thanks for the meal. Here's a song that is real. Kid from the city to you. There were tremendous economic difficulties associated with Western farm life. First and foremost was overproduction. Because the amount of land under cultivation increased dramatically and new farming techniques produced greater and greater yields, the food market became so flooded with goods that prices fell sharply. Now while this might be great for the consumer, the farmer had to grow a tremendous amount of food to recoup enough profits to survive for the winter. A farmer's number one concern was no longer environmental but financial. A farmer's number one concern was debt. New machinery and fertilizer was needed to farm on a large scale. Often farmers borrowed money to purchase this equipment leaving themselves hopelessly in debt when the harvest came. The high tariff forced them to pay higher prices for household goods for their families while the goods they themselves sold were unprotected. The railroads fleeced the small farmer. Farmers were often charged higher rates to ship their goods a short distance than perhaps a manufacturer back east who would pay to transport wares the same distance. And the woes faced by farmers transcended economics. Nature was unkind in this part of the country, particularly the Great Plains. Blistering summers and cruel winters were commonplace Frequent drought spells made farming even more difficult. That's not to mention even the insect blights that raged throughout some regions, eating further into the farmers' profits. Farmers lacked political power. Washington was a long way from the Great Plains, and politicians seemed to turn deaf ears to the farmers' cries. Social problems were also prevalent. With each neighbor on 160-acre plots of land, communication was difficult and loneliness was widespread. The farm proved monotonous compared with the bustling cities of the East Coast. Although rural families were now able to purchase mail-order products through catalogs such as Sears and Montgomery Ward, there was simply no comparison with what the Eastern Market could provide. These conditions could not last. Out of this social and economic unrest, farmers began to organize and make demands that would rock the eastern establishments and Washington itself. Organization was inevitable. Like the oppressed laboring classes of the East, it was only a matter of time before Western farmers would attempt to use their numbers to affect positive change. Coming up next in our second part in the series of Closing the West, farmers organize and affect political change even in the White House. In 1867 the first such national organization was formed. Led by Oliver Kelly, the patrons of husbandry, also known as the Grange, organized to address the social isolation of farm life and the crippling debt. In part three of our series of Closing the Frontier, as settlers begin to move west over the Rocky Mountains, Native Americans await their arrival. Conflict turns to massacre. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me for this edition of Print the Legend. I'm your host, Mr. Nassosi, and it's been a pleasure to have you journey alongside of me for this learning excursion, and I'll look forward to welcoming you back next time where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. Three terms as governor, two terms in the Senate, ambassador to the court of St. James, Back again to the Senate, and a man who, with a snap of his fingers, could be the next vice president of the United States. You're not going to use the story, Mr. Scott? No, sir. This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend.